1991, a woman was murdered by her abusive boyfriend at a motel as she was attempting to leave him. When police responded, they found that the woman used multiple aliases and her true identity was unknown. Until May of 2022, when genetic genealogy closed this case, she was known only as the El Dorado Jane Doe. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This is supposed to be my week off, but I decided to release a short episode. It was actually going to be a different episode, but fate intervened, and this is the case we are covering. I covered this one on my old podcast, and I try not to do too many reruns of those topics here on Crime Lines because I do realize that so many of you are listeners from back then. If I repeat a topic, it is usually because someone has requested it. Bearbrook is one that I will probably get to this summer. It's had developments since I covered it on Insight. I've been asked to cover the Austin Yogurt Shop murders by a couple of people, and that one is another one that I am possibly going to cover by the end of the year. Because this case, the El Dorado Jane Doe, had a major update recently, as in it was solved, I thought it was a really good time to revisit it. I will give you first the case as it stood for decades, and then we'll go over the information that has been released. The link to the original article that announces the solve in this case is in the show notes. You don't have to click to my sources to find it. It'll be right there so that you can read all of the details. I certainly don't want to take the thunder from the people who did the work by just putting it all out here in a rip-and-read podcast format. So click that link because you're going to get more information there. This case takes place in El Dorado, Arkansas in 1991. A young woman was living in a motel with her boyfriend, and they had been together for up to a year, maybe less, though they were fairly new to El Dorado. The woman went by several names. These include Kelly Carr, Sharon Carr, Karen Carr, Shannon Wiley, Sharon Wiley, Cheryl Ann Wick, and Mercedes. The name Mercedes was generally reserved for use at the clubs she would dance at. In my original episode on this case for Insight, I decided to call her Kelly because it seemed to be the name most people used for her, and I didn't want to spend the whole episode calling her by her doe name, El Dorado, which can somewhat dehumanize the person. It turned out that this was the right call because her real name was Kelly, and we'll get into that towards the end of the episode. Kelly had been with a man named James McAlphin for about a year. The timeline is muddy, but he was locked up for three years, getting out in May of 1990. So we know they started dating after that point. He told his family that they met in Dallas, and we do know Kelly worked in Dallas. She was arrested there for prostitution in 1990. And at the time of her arrest, she was using the name Cheryl Ann Wick. She also worked at a fast food restaurant using the same name, but a fake social security number. 
So you may wonder why someone was working at a fast food place, probably for low wages, when she was making far more money in other ways. To me, it sounds like she was working this job so she could get out of the sex industry. It's not known if Kelly was working in the sex industry of her own free will, because James will sometimes be referred to as her boyfriend slash pimp in the reporting, giving you an idea of their relationship dynamic. He was also physically abusive, and Kelly had gone to the hospital for her injuries multiple times. In fact, the police were called to the hospital due to the frequency of her visits. It's been reported that they tried to get her to leave James, and the general feeling was that she was being controlled by him. Friends have reported that Kelly was terrified of James. All of this makes me lean towards Kelly being exploited. But between what Kelly thought was her love for James and certainly her fear of him, she stayed. And that was until June of 1991. Kelly left James in spite of the repeated threats he made against her life. She moved in with a friend while she tried to get herself sorted out and free of James McAlphin. On July 10th, 1991, James called Kelly and asked her if she would meet with him. She didn't want to, but he was offering to give her some money, which was something she really could use right then. She told her roommate that the money would allow her to send some presents back home to her children. The motel James lived at was a short distance from the apartment Kelly had moved to, so she was able to just walk over. When Kelly arrived, she went right into James's room. A neighbor at the motel knocked on the door to ask James to return something he had borrowed, and Kelly opened the door. She told him that he needed to check with James, and then she left the room and headed towards the parking lot. The neighbor said it was clear that the two were arguing. James then walked past the neighbor and went after Kelly. He hit her, and he physically dragged her back into the room where the argument became even louder. The neighbor had gone back into his own room in the meantime. This was the type of motel where people minded their own business. Kelly's roommate happened to be walking past the motel when she heard a loud pop that she thought was gunfire. She said her first thought was Kelly. She ran over and saw Kelly lying on the floor of James's room, dead from a single gunshot wound. She and others then saw James take off in his car. James did eventually return and turn himself into the police. And he had a story about what really happened, according to him. He claimed that Kelly took his gun and had shot herself. He was scared he would be blamed, and that's why he left. Now, this doesn't fit with any of the evidence, and it was frankly a ridiculous claim to make. At the crime scene, investigators found an Arkansas ID for Cheryl Ann Wick with a picture that matched the victim. 
In order to notify the next of kin, they used the name and birth date to find Cheryl's parents, who were living in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The issue is, when the investigators reached out, they found out that Cheryl Ann Wick was also living in Minneapolis. She was alive and well, and this was verified when the police spoke to her. Cheryl was shown photos of the person who was using her name, and she did not recognize Kelly. However, Cheryl had also worked as a dancer. She worked for a club in Minneapolis and said her identification was probably stolen out of her purse while it was left unattended. Because of the coincidence of the victim taking the identity of another adult dancer, police thought it was possible Kelly had been in Minneapolis at some point. But if she was, it was likely briefly because they couldn't find people up there who recognized her. In going through Kelly's things to find her true identity, they did find some breadcrumbs of her movements. The items that pointed the farthest away from Arkansas were menus from restaurants in Virginia Beach, Virginia, which is about 1,200 miles away. There was a flyer from a recording studio in Wiley, Texas found, and Wiley is near Dallas, and we know that Kelly lived there in 1990 when she met James. Another item found was a diary page from August of 1990. Kelly named two people in this entry, Tyrone and Gail. She referred to a boyfriend simply as he, and it's been interpreted different ways by different people that James was the boyfriend, he was the he, but it could also be read that Tyrone was the boyfriend and it was he that was the he. It's believed Kelly was in Shreveport, Louisiana at this point. Personally, it sounds to me like Tyrone was the boyfriend and they were both living with Gail because in the last entry she wrote, I thought we could leave today, but no such luck. Gail came home today. She didn't seem very happy to see us still here. Tyrone gave her $100. He can't get that stupid VW to work. So he doesn't know what to do. I just want to get to Texas and get to work. To me, it sounds like Tyrone gave Gail money to appease her for letting them stay there and that Kelly and Tyrone plan to leave using that VW that he couldn't fix. But then again, maybe Tyrone was just a friend trying to help Kelly and James get back to Dallas, and he gave Gail money on their behalf. As far as I can tell, Tyrone and Gail hadn't been identified during the investigation. But since this is the same range, we know James met Kelly as Cheryl Ann Wick. It's possible they don't know any more about her identity. They probably knew her as Cheryl, Kelly, or Mercedes, and not much about her background. Another item found in her possessions was a Bible, and it appeared to be a family Bible because there were several names written in it, most of them with the same surname. That family was located living in Irving, Texas, which is also near Dallas. The family was not biological relatives, which the police could see right away because they were black and Kelly was white, but they said that she did live with them for a period of time in the mid to late 1990s 
But again, she was already going by a false identity at this point. The police also found several photographs of Kelly in her possession, which was one of the things that made the story very frustrating when it was unsolved. The investigators weren't relying on reconstructions or sketches or morgue photos. They had a variety of pictures of Kelly smiling, not smiling, makeup, no makeup, but they just never got to the people who could identify her for a very long time. Though they could not identify Kelly, that's not a barrier to getting justice for her murder, obviously. James ended up dropping his story of suicide, and he did take a plea deal for second-degree murder and spent 15 years in prison. Even with her murder case resolved, the El Dorado police continued to try to find out as much as they could about Kelly to see if it would lead to her past. She had unfortunately told different people different things about her past. She said she was a runaway from Florida, but told others she ran away from Louisiana. Then she went to Minnesota, and then she moved to Dallas. Kelly told workers at a Salvation Army in Arkansas that she had a child who had been taken away from her by social services in Texas. Because she used a different name at that time, she said she couldn't go and get her child back. But then she told others that she actually had two children, and both of them were being raised by her mom, who she did not have a good relationship with. I mean, it is possible that both of these stories were true, that she had two older children raised by a family member and a third taken by CPS. But neither of these leads led to her identity. Kelly also had stories about her father being in the mafia and that they were in witness protection, but that's a well-documented paper trail and there was no evidence of it. Kelly also told someone that she was once used as a lure at truck stops. Basically, she would be a woman who would distract the truck drivers and get them out of their cabs while her companion would jump out and rob them. She said that one of these robberies went bad and a truck driver was killed. So looking broadly in that region for a story that matched that, they found the 1988 unsolved murder of a truck driver in Oklahoma. Dwayne McCorkendale was a 28-year-old father of twin girls. He was from Kansas. He had pulled over into a rest stop and gotten out of his cab to call his wife from a payphone. And we know this is what he was doing because He mentioned it over the CB radio that truck drivers often used to keep in touch with each other. It was possible the people who robbed and killed him also had a CB radio and listened for comments like this. Dwayne was found by the payphone having been shot in the back. During the investigation into his murder, Other truckers reported a brown Pinto that had a CB radio, and they were harassing truck drivers. The driver of the Pinto would cut the trucks off, and another trucker said 
that they had stopped him at one point and a young woman asked him for drugs. The reports are that the Pinto had three people in it, a white man, a black man, and a white woman. So the question is, was Kelly the woman? Her story somewhat matches what happened to Dwayne McCorkendale, but it's vague details, and vague details will line up with other vague details. Her description does match the woman who asked the truck driver for drugs, but there's no direct evidence linking her to this. There was also at one point a letter the police sent to the FBI that said that Kelly Lee Carr had told someone she was wanted for a bank robbery in Virginia, but the FBI looked into it and they couldn't find any bank robbery that would match, and it's believed that this story was untrue as were the mafia and the witness protection stories and who knows how many others. James claimed he knew who Kelly was, really, saying that he even met her mother and her sister when they visited from Florida, though he also said Kelly was actually from Oklahoma. He claimed if the police knew who Kelly was for real, it would close other cold cases. He offered to release all of the information he had if someone would pay him $4,000. No one took him up on this offer. James did give some information for free, and it's probably a good indication of why no one was going to pay him for more information. His stories contradicted each other and in some cases didn't make any sense. He claimed that Kelly was taken from her family by force and she was on the streets by the age of 16. He said she was part of a group of trafficking victims. She had a pimp named JJ, but then later left him with the help of the previously mentioned Tyrone, who then became her pimp. James, the Boy Scout that he was, claimed he rescued her from Tyrone and took her to Louisiana. But he didn't force her into this. He said that while she began as a trafficking victim, as an adult with him, she was choosing it. And we're just going to call that out real quick because a trafficked teenager who has been passed between pimps and physically abused by them is not choosing that as an adult. Making a choice to be in sex work implies there are options. Kelly tried to leave and James killed her. So where was the choice there? No education, no training, and years of abuse, and then death when she tries to get away. Lack of options means there was no choice. And that's if it's even true because it's coming from James. But let's get back to his claim that he could close other cold cases if he revealed Kelly's identity. James said, that Kelly was part of the same trafficking circle in the Dallas-Fort Worth area as the Fort Worth Three. If you're not familiar with that case, Julianne Mosley, Rachel Trelika, and Lisa Renee Wilson all went shopping together to a mall in Fort Worth shortly before Christmas 1974. They never returned, and they have never been seen again. James claimed that he had met the three young women, and like Kelly, 
they had become willing members of the prostitution ring as adults. In my opinion, I think James pulled out some names he knew would get attention in the hopes someone would pay him, if only to get the information that may crack the Fort Worth 3 case. He tried to lump Kelly in with a high-profile case to get a payday, but it didn't work. Over the years, a lot of missing people were ruled out as being Kelly, or as she was known at the time, the El Dorado Jane Doe. There was believed to be a strong possibility, though, that she had never been reported missing. We saw this in the case of Lori Erica Ruff, which was a case that for many, many years I was incredibly invested in. I don't want to say obsessed, but definitely invested. Like, I remember where I was the day I found out that she had been identified. Like, that's how invested I was. I have a memory of where I was when I found out. In 2010, the woman known as Lori Erica Ruff took her own life, and her husband learned after her death that her identity was fake. She had held down jobs, gotten married, had a child, all under this fake identity. When she was finally identified as Kimberly McLean, we learned that she had never been reported missing because she really wasn't missing. At 18 years old, she told her mother she wanted no further contact, and she moved away. So if you think there's a strong possibility Kelly was never reported missing, then obviously genetic genealogy, when it came about, it seemed like the best option. In 2019, they did get a hit to a woman living in Alabama. She turned out to be a second cousin who didn't know Kelly, but she did say that there was some kind of family resemblance. They determined that Kelly's father was a descendant of Daniel Wood and Mamie Carter of Virginia. So it sounds easy enough to trace this because you have these two people, so you just trace their line and try to find the missing piece. But there were actually two issues with this, and the first was that Daniel and Mamie were prolific. They had nine children who then went on to have who knows how many children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. This second cousin match in Alabama was actually the great-grandchild of Daniel and Mamie. So we're talking possibly hundreds of people. The other issue was that this was a paternal link. A father isn't always listed on the birth certificate, and in some cases, the father named isn't the biological father. So tracing his path will not find all of his children. And that turned out to be the case here. The genetic genealogists had to go looking for a maternal relative. It was announced on the website closingthecase.com that the El Dorado Jane Doe was identified. Her real first name was Kelly, but her surname is being withheld for the family's privacy. So credit to the solve goes to the El Dorado police captain, Kathy Phillips, who actively investigated this cold case. The genetic genealogists are Yolanda McClary, Jean Greer, and Michael LeClaire. 
Sam Kostichka is named as having provided additional research. Kelly was born in Virginia in 1968 to her mother, Brenda, and the man she thought was her father. Turns out he was not biologically her father, which is why that Alabama lead didn't go anywhere. Kelly did have a younger sister who she was very close to, and when Kelly was three, her parents separated and divorced the following year. Shortly after the divorce, Brenda remarried, and that man was reportedly abusive. Brenda had a third baby, but she placed that baby with another family. After Brenda divorced her second husband, she remarried pretty quickly, but then he took his own life not long after the marriage, and Kelly was only 11 at this point. Now, the remaining years of Kelly's life were even less stable than the first 11. There was a lot of moving and going between her mother's house and her aunt's house, and her mother's home was not a stable location. They had to move frequently due to being evicted. She left high school in the 10th grade to go to work. Kelly then moved to Florida, later Texas, then Little Rock, then back to Florida with her mother. In 1990, when Kelly was about 22, she went to Virginia, and that's when she took the menus from her favorite places that were found among her things in Arkansas. Kelly then went to Texas and then Arkansas, El Dorado to be specific, and she was just 23 when she was killed. Kelly's mother had, over the years, dropped out of contact with her family, and she died in Virginia in 2008. The rest of the family wondered what had happened to Kelly. They had no idea that she had been dead for 30 years. There are more details about Kelly and her life at the website, and again, linked in the show notes. As for the clues and pieces of information that the police had prior to this identification, some of it rang true, like the menus from Virginia Beach. Her age had been estimated at 18 to 30. James McAlphin said that she was actually older than him and he was born in 1964, but surprise, this was not true. I said years ago in my original episode on this that When you look at the pictures of Kelly without makeup, she looked younger. So I leaned towards the younger age. But it turned out that her age was nearly smack in the middle of the range. The details James gave turned out to be largely false, except that she did have a mother and a sister. But her sister had moved back to Virginia by the time Kelly had met him. So the sister and mother weren't living together in Florida, and it's Impossible to know if James ever met either one of them. What people said Kelly said about having children was not addressed at all in the post on her life, so it may not have been true. And it probably goes without saying that she did not grow up with the Fort Worth Three. As for stealing Cheryl Ann Wick's identity, it seems like Kelly did it just to get a fake ID that made her 18 when she was still a minor so that she could go work in clubs. It sounds like Kelly had a tragic life leading to her tragic death. But a lot of people came together and worked hard to get her her name back, 
And she did have people who loved her very much and felt her loss even though they didn't know that she had been murdered. Kelly was buried in El Dorado, Arkansas, so her family does have a place to go visit her and pay their respects. And now that they know, they can start processing the loss and work towards healing. And maybe one day they will want to share more of Kelly's story publicly, but I do have my thoughts with them as they are dealing with this, and I hope that everyone is giving them the privacy that they have requested. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.